John 14, uh, somewhat continuing from last week in chapter 14. Chapter 14 of John, in case you're new with us, we're going through the book of John and have been for several months. But in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, uh, we find in the timeline of Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus is within days of uh, being crucified. And so he is gathered with his disciples after they had what sometimes is referred to as the Last Supper. Uh, and he is giving them words of encouragement, words of comfort, because he's already spoken to them about his death. And that, again, pushes back against their concept of what the Messiah uh, should do or what the Messiah should be. They were kind of part of the thinking in that generation that the idea of a Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament that was to come, that was to lay down their life, to give up their life, and to die, as Jesus had told them that he is going to do, even though it's clearly enunciated in Isaiah and passages throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, they had this mindset, not just these disciples, but the Jewish uh, culture, that the Messiah was going to be more of a political figure, a military figure that was going to come in and, and uh, uh, kick the bums out, that's the Romans, and to reestablish Israel back to the Davidic glory of King David and reestablish Israel in all its power and glory uh, before the world. And so the idea that a Messiah would lay their, his life down was just something really di difficult for them to get their minds around. So the reason I say that is because Jesus, in John chapter 14, and we looked at part of this last week, he begins in chapter 14, verse 1, where he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Their hearts are troubled. They're confused. Uh, Jesus talks about one of them from their group is going to betray them. They're confused because that's not their understanding of what Messiah should be uh, and to do would be to look, intentionally let him be uh, arrested and put to death. And they couldn't figure out why, how that was going to fit into God's plan. And so there's disappointment, there's disillusionment, uh, and just fear that uh, their hearts are troubled, and Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't fear, but believe in me. Believe in God. Believe that God has things under control. And this morning, as we continue this, a little similar, but yet I want to just, before we partake of communion this morning, look at several principles that finish most of chapter 14 out that I thought about skipping and going on, but I just found it so encouraging that I want us to take time to look at it in chapter 14 and uh, verse, uh, verse 14. I'm going to read John 14, and we're going to read verses 14 through 17, and then skip down to verse 27. John 14, beginning at verse 14, Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, Keep my commandments, and I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Go down to verse 27. Verse 27. 
peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a uh, water well of life that we can drink from. And I pray this morning that your flock will draw encouragement through the words, your literal words that you speak, not only to those individuals, Lord, in that place, in that time, 2,000 years ago, but God, your followers, your disciples here today that may be troubled by various things that are happening in our life, maybe, Lord, health issues, maybe appointments, maybe family-related issues, financial uh, issues, uncertainty of a job, uh, Lord, whatever it is, God, it causes our heart to be anxious and doubtful and troubled. And Lord, may we draw strength and encouragement this morning as we listen and review the words of Jesus to draw strength, God, from what you said then and what you say to us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, the title is Calming Promises for Troubled Hearts. Jesus wants to calm his followers, not that bad things are not going to happen, but he wants to give words that are calming, that are reassuring promises for troubled hearts. And again, I don't know what may be troubling you this morning, and it could be any of those things that I prayed about or something different, but whatever it is, I pray that the Holy Spirit guides us and does his job today and teaches us and brings the comfort of the Spirit by applying the Word of God into our lives. And so how do we deal with troubled hearts? Jesus, in essence, is saying, look to me. Look to me. Believe. Believe is, as we said last week, we could say trust. Trust in me. Jesus says, here's how to stop a troubled, anxious heart. Look to me. Here's how I can make a difference is to relieve you of the, the troubling, the, the anxiousness that's going on, the fear, the worry. It doesn't necessarily mean as these disciples, it doesn't mean that they're not going to face trouble. In fact, many of them, uh, in fact, most of them except the Apostle John eventually would be led to their deaths. So he's not saying that what he's, his type of calming is absence of trouble, but he's saying, but listen and look to me that I can bring the spirit of my life to help you navigate through any trouble. And this morning, just I want to look at uh, several things here in this remaining part of this chapter, and I'm going to run through them relatively quickly because they pretty much explain themselves as these various principles. And in your uh, bulletin, you should have a little blue sheet that's a listener guide to help you get more out of the service instead of just uh, staring off into space and listening and and uh, you be engaged in Scripture, and if you turn your cell phone off, that's always helpful to not let it ring uh, during the time of teaching, because I believe, and I'm sure you believe too, that the Holy Spirit works in the midst of His people, and part of the worship that we engage with this morning is engaging and hearing the literal words of God, and allowing the Holy Spirit to impart it into our life, and so anything that's distracting uh, we want to make sure we can eliminate. So if you trust that you brought your Bibles uh, or you got it to swipe or 
poke or pinch or whatever it is you do, uh, then you can follow along, but most of these will be on the Scripture. But I want to just walk through, and the principles are pretty much laid out the way Jesus speaks them, and how do we apply these calming promises for troubled hearts? Number one, listen to what Jesus said. He said uh, in verse 14, he said, I will do whatever you ask in my name. When your heart is troubled, ask. You have not because you ask not. You know, we ask everybody, the neighbor, the mailman, the, the, the person at Wawa, we ask everybody under the sun what to do in our times of trouble. What's your advice? And the one person that we fail to ask is, the Bible says in James that if any of you lack wisdom, ask God. He gives freely. We have access to ask Christ. We have access because of Christ. And Jesus says, ask, but notice what it says, ask anything, and we like to stop there, right, don't we? But what does he say? Ask anything in my name. Is it anything you can put the name of Jesus on. And, and again, a rule of thumb in our asking is something we talked about last week up in verse 13 when he talks about that the Son is to be glorified in our life. So my asking and the desire of Jesus to meet the needs in my life uh, has to be that which Jesus can put his name upon. Uh, asking Jesus to find you another wife when you presently are married to a wife that is not, that, isn't, that, that ain't it, okay? So you understand where we're going in this. You want to say, Father, does this glorify you? Does this magnify you? Does, by asking, is that really something out of just something I want? And guess what? I'm glad God gives us our wants too. But our goal of the maturity of our faith and walking with Christ is, Lord, that I'm going to ask in your name, you can sign on this request because it reflects you and it reflects our Heavenly Father. It glorifies and advances your purposes, not only in my life, but in my family's life, in my job, or whatever it is that I'm asking for. Do that which glorifies your name. Look at the little handout there. There's some things that, what are we really saying when we pray in Jesus' name? And, and it is not just some little mantra and little tag-along that whatever we say, if I say the formula, shazam, you know, that it's going to, it's like some little uh, magical genie that I've rubbed the bottle. No, 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 it's not what, what it is. It's, again, asking that which is in consistency with who Jesus is. I can feel free to ask because of what Jesus has done for me. He's given me access. He's given me freedom. I'm depending on God's power and not mine when I ask. I'm demonstrating trust. I want this when I ask if it fits with Jesus' purposes and plans. Is it consistent with Scripture? Is it consistent with His character? And I want the answer to this prayer to be that which glorifies God. Secondly, he says in verse 15, a calming promise is, you will obey me. Look at verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. One of the things that when our hearts are troubled or anxious or distressed or depressed or whatever it is, sometimes that's when we don't feel like being obedient. That's when we don't feel like doing it God's way. So when our heart is troubled, be obedient. Obey God. Don't slack off and say, well, you know what? This doesn't work, so I'm just going to do 
what is right in my own eyes. I'm just going to do what makes sense. I found that my sense isn't that sometimes good, right? Sometimes what makes sense to me and practical and say, well, this just is how I would do it. Well, guess what? That may not be and probably isn't the mind of the Lord. And the hardest thing is to trust. Jesus said, if you, if you believe in me, if you trust me, yes, even in trouble, that trust me, and part of that trust is demonstrating being obedient. Obey God in everything and leave the consequences to him. Amen? Amen. Obey God. And notice the condition, he says in verse 15, he says, if, if, that's a condition, isn't it? A demonstration of our genuine love isn't coming to church. That may be part of, part of it. It isn't having a fish little emblem on our, on our uh, bumper of our car. It isn't, uh, no, what is, the, what is the real sign of obedience is do I, I mean of, of faithfulness and love for Christ? is do I have an obedient heart? Do I believe what he says and do I trust? We can believe, but we never really engage with that belief, right? I can believe it, but I never act on my trust. And there's so many things in Scripture that are conditional upon that trusting in him. Jesus says, do you believe? Are your hearts troubled? Trust me, and trusting means that you'll obey. Thirdly, What a wonderful promise. Jesus says, I will send the Holy Spirit. Now, most of you know that the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And so when your heart is troubled, call upon the Holy Spirit. What a great promise he gives here in verse 16. And he says, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Now go back, verse 16, that word helper, and again in your uh, listener's guide I have a little definition there. In the Greek, the Greek, the word helper is the word parakletos, or paraclete, not parakeet, paraclete, or paraclete, okay? Uh, the whole, uh, all right, so don't get confused there. But notice the little definition that's helpful. Sometimes knowing uh, a particular word gives a little bit of, and that's where the Greek language is a little more precise and refined that sometimes English can bring out. We just think of a, of a helper, you know, like I'm in distress and I have somebody come along and, and just help me tow my car or whatever, and that certainly is a helper. But look, notice again, the expanded here in that little uh, box there on your outline. Uh, uh, in the uh, Greek, a parakletos is someone who was called in to help in time of desperate need. It was used to someone who would advise you in a difficult situation, stand with you in a court of law, or come to help in any time of need. If you have an amplified uh, Bible translation, it expands the words because the amplified, uh, what's called the amplified Bible, it's a type of uh, translation Bible help, and it helps you to understand in English the expansion of Greek words. So sometimes it might just have where we have helper, it'll put the additional words in brackets to, so you can see in English, because most of us don't speak Greek, uh, that we could read it and understand how that word helper can mean uh, intercessor, advocate, strengthener, uh, standby. It means it's someone that comes alongside 
in time of need. What a great promise. Jesus says, I'm not just giving you a lot of lofty principles, but I'm actually sending the Holy Spirit, which we will learn in, in, uh, later uh, in John, is the very presence of Christ himself, that I'm going to come alongside of you. In fact, look over to uh, just kind of a preview of coming attractions that we'll be at. Look over to chapter 16. Chapter 16 and verse 7. Chapter 16, verse 7. I don't think I put this, but just look at verse 7. We'll just read verse 7. John 16, verse 7, because I want to expand on this when we talk about the Holy Spirit uh, when we get to this section. But notice something Jesus says as he continues in this discussion to his disciples. He said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, there it is again, the parakletos, the helper will not come to you, or the Holy Spirit will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Do you see what verse 7 is saying? He's saying, it is to your advantage. It is better that I depart, because unless I depart, I can't send the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what he's saying. He's saying, guys, up until this point, you have had me with you, But when I depart, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit that is going to be my very presence in you. And he says, that's better, right? That's better. Jesus is saying, and I'm not just going to be with you, even though he's with us. But he says, I'm going to literally be inside of you. I will never leave you. And I'm not just going to be, when they wanted to be with Jesus, they all had to gather where he physically was. But now the Spirit of God can dwell in my life and in your life simultaneously. He's not just at my house. He can be at your house. He can be in your life. He is the helper. So why is that important as a calming word in trouble? It's because we have someone that has the full resources of heaven if we just ask. He said, I will send you the Holy Spirit. I will send you the one who will walk alongside of you, that will help you, that will be with you in times of discouragement, times of heartache. The Holy Spirit has all the resources, has all the access of heaven to come alongside of you and to help you through the most difficult and trying, troubling, distressing situation in your life. You may live alone. You may be alone. You may be a widow or a widower. You may be divorced, may be single, or you may be married and really feel alone. You're never alone as a believer because the Bible says that Jesus has given us the presence of His literal presence as our gift. And that ties into the next, in in, uh, number four, where he says, I will not leave you alone, kind of in this same thought. In your outline, there's a typo. It should be verse 18 for number four, verse 18. He says, "I I will not leave you orphans, but I will come to you. Again, loneliness is a horrible thing. And so when your heart is troubled, remember that he will never leave me, that Jesus will never leave me. Some of you need that comfort to knowing that, again, you may be physically alone. You might even be emotionally alone. 
You know, you can be in a crowd of people. You can live in a big family and be alone. You may be smiles and exhibit popularity and they think you're just the most gregarious person, but when the day is done and you lay there at night, you feel so alone. Yeah, even for the believer. One of the worst punishments that a prisoner can experience is isolation. To be put in where there is no contact with anybody for any real time. Isolation, solitary confinement. Some believers have chosen to live in a solitary confinement when the Lord Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I am sending you, or I have sent, we're on the backside of Calvary now, we're on the other side of the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has come. I have given you the Holy Spirit, and I will not leave you as orphans. One of the saddest things, and maybe this has been true of your experience in growing up, is that maybe a parent or somebody you loved very closely when you were a young child, you were left and you were made an orphan, maybe not a legal orphan, but maybe... You were taken in by a relative or somebody, and that sense of aloneness is something that we carry over into adulthood. We try to adjust. We try to get around it. We try to deal with it. We figure if I just, if I just fill my dance card up with a lot of people and a lot of activity, somehow I can overcome this. But when we are at our loneliest moment by ourselves, we feel that sense of orphan. I call it an orphan spirit. And there's people that have an orphan spirit. They feel lonely. Well, that isn't what Jesus says. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm giving you myself, and I will not abandon you. Notice number five. He says, you will live. Now, we know in the, um, where he says in verse 19, he said, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you, remember he's talking to his disciples, but you, you will see me. (laughs) I'm not going to disappear. You will see me because, notice what he says, because I live, you will live also. You remember what Jesus told Martha and Mary back in chapter 11, verse 25? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Isn't that what John is writing the Gospel of John about? Remember, we, we, we've not done it in a few weeks, but at the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 31, you remember what John tells us? He says, the reason I've written these things about Jesus is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and look at this, that by believing, by trusting in Christ, you may have what? You may have life in His name. We are surrounded by death, all day long. The spirit of death is around us. The spirit of death is in our world. But Jesus says, I've come. The enemy is the one that brings death. The enemy is the one that brings death. You look at the news, you look at people's lives, and you see the spirit of death that is engulfed. And Jesus says, I've come to bring you life. Life, even though you might be surrounded and tempted to fall into that same morose mentality of just feeling everything is hopeless and dead in my life, Jesus reminds us that he is our life. The difference between life and death, that we have life in his name. You notice how Paul 
said this in Galatians 2.20. The Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Oh, yeah, it was Paul. If you looked at me, you'd say, oh, yeah, that looks like Paul. Yes, it's Paul physically, but he says something has changed. Something in my life is transformed. He says, it's no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. And he said, the life that I live now, and he talked a lot about his past life, what he did and what he thought was following the will of God, and, and, and he was off the mark. But he says, the life that I now live in the flesh, in this body, in the time that God has given me on this earth, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God. I live with a, with a, with a sense of trusting in the purposes of Christ for my life. Because he loved me. And he gave himself for me. And because he gave himself for me, he paid and bought my security that I'm not going to be an orphan, that I have life. One of my favorite scriptures is in Colossians, 1 Colossians. <laughs> now, you know I can't let you live that down. You and Donald Trump, 2 Corinthians. All right. Um, <laughs> look at Colossians chapter 3. I just lost the Trump crowd. All right. Colossians 3. He says, if then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And look at verse 3. For you died. Now, you may be physically alive, and I hope you are today. Some of you, I'm not a little sure about, maybe on some of those back rows, kind of spartan up a little bit. But you died, meaning spiritually, you died in Christ and your life, again, there's the life, is what? Hidden with Christ in God. I always use this illustration that my life that I now live is all hidden and wrapped up in Jesus. And for when the Father sees my life, what does he see? He sees me all wrapped up in Jesus. Remember what he told and said where everybody could hear it when Jesus was baptized by his cousin John the Baptist? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, if I'm all wrapped up in Jesus, guess what God thinks about me? Guess what the Father thinks about me? This is my son, Tim, in whom I'm well pleased. Why? Because I'm all that and a cup of coffee and good and didn't kick the dog. And no, 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 no. No, why? Because my life is hidden with Christ in God. And when God sees me, what does he see? He sees my life that I now live I live by faith in Jesus. I'm alive in Jesus. My life is not taking the cues from a death-filled culture. My life is in God. Notice number six. Jesus says in verse 20, you will be one with God. What does he mean there? It means that when your heart, when your heart is troubled, remember your identity. Jim spoke on this so well a few weeks back, but remember who you are. Remember your identity. Remember your true identity. Look at verse, let me read verse 20. He said, at that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He's saying that the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and by the way, 
in all this chapter and forward, you see that what, we, what, the, or what Scripture talks about is the Trinity. You see the Father uh, spoken of. You see the Son, the Holy Spirit. You see the, all those interacting together as one. Jesus says your true identity is not in your career, in your education, or even in your lack of education. You're, it's not in your failure. It's not in your sin. It's not in achievements. Your identity is all wrapped up in Jesus. That's your new identity. And if your new identity is in him, guess what? You're going to be interested in following your new identity. You're going to be interested in following that which is who you are in Christ. You're going to be interested in the agenda of the kingdom of God that's in Christ. My identity is now all tied up as a believer in Jesus. Jesus says, number seven, he says another promise that should encourage us. And by the way, these are, these are things that, you know, if you're discouraged or even if you're not discouraged, you will be discouraged, right? You're either in a valley. There's only three options we live. Valley is a metaphor the Bible speaks of a trial or a hard situation. You're either in the valley, you're in the middle of the valley going through stuff, you're coming out. You're coming out of it. Woo, I'm glad that's over. And guess what? You're going to get ready to go into another valley. That's the way life works, isn't it? So this may not be helpful to you now, but I assure you that if you begin to rehearse and apply and think and meditate and, and, re, and take these words as your words, I believe there's great comfort in the literal words of Jesus. But Jesus says, I will love you. And we remember when we're troubled, when we have troubled hearts, when your heart is troubled, remember the love of God. Sometimes that's hard to do, isn't it? Because it's hard to think that God loves me when I'm not even sure I love myself. Now, there's a lot of false self-love, you know, that in the, in the secular, non-Christian sense that puts us at the center of all things. I'm not talking about that. But... but my identity, if it's all wrapped up and identified in who Jesus is, is that I can receive and be the recipient of the unconditional love of God. The Bible says that even when Jesus saw me in my sin, that means when I was absolutely separated from him spiritually, the Bible says that he died for my sins. If you're waiting to get your act together... <laughs> You're never going to get your act together. You hear people say, well, you know, I'll start, I'll start getting involved in church when I clean up my life. Well, you'll never get it that clean. You can't. You can't. That's why we are dependent upon the cleansing power of Jesus Christ. We sing about the blood of Christ. And so the Bible says that God loves you. What does he say in verse 21? He said, he who has my commandments, verse 21, and keeps them. Ooh, ah, yeah, keeps them. That's important, right? The one who keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me, because he keeps my commandments, he will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest or make myself known to him. And he does that in and through the Holy Spirit. Some of you remember the name may take you back a little generation, but some of you remember the name Madeline Murray O'Hare. 
I mean, remember who that was. Madeline Murray O'Hare with her son William, they lived in Baltimore, or Baltimore, if you're from there, I think I said it close, but back in 1963, she took the case, I say she did, with a lot of help from the ACLU and other uh, secularists, took the case all the way to the Supreme Court because she was against prayer in public schools. She did not want her son to be exposed to such heinous activity as prayer in public schools. Now, this is 1963. And so the case went all the way through to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed with that case and said that it is against the Constitution to mandate or to have even a voluntary prayer in the public school. And thus, some of you, how many of you grew up and you are old enough to remember being in school, grade school, whatever it is, and you had prayer in your public school? A lot of you. To my generation and those after, I mean, that's really a foreign concept. But it's interesting that Madeline Murray O'Hare, and she used to kind of make the circuit in the day of, uh, you know, if uh, on, on a talk show like Phil Donahue, Sally Jesse Raphael. Remember those? Remember those illuminaries, uh, folks? And they would always put her up against somebody like a Jerry Falwell or I remember uh, Bob Harrison, the chaplain of Bourbon Street. You remember that? Remember that guy? And, and, and it would always be this hostile debate between the one person representing Christianity, and she, she obviously was, uh, she had found an American atheist, and she, she was a very combative and at times a very vile, mean-spirited person in just the way that she mocked and attacked Christianity. Sadly, she uh, died a very tragic death, but this, this is what I wanted to mention here with the point of that knowing that God loves me. After, after her death, they found her diaries. And early in her life, over and over again in different places, in her personal diaries that nobody had seen, this is what she wrote. She said, I just wish somebody would love me. I just wish somebody would love me. And the very one that she had dedicated her life to attack Loved her the most. You think she was loved any less than anybody else? Number eight. Jesus says another calming word of comfort. He says, we, meaning the Trinity, the very Godhead or God, that we will make you, you he will make us, he will make you our dwelling place. Now get this. Jesus said back in verse uh, 2 of chapter 14, he said, in my father's house are many mansions or dwelling places, really a better translation, or many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. But he says, I go to prepare a place for you. So he talks about this home. And it's interesting that in verse 23, the same word he uses for dwelling places, 
or some versions, mansions, but really dwelling places, is the same word that is used for home in verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, and this was a question of Judas. There was another Judas, not Iscariot, who was the traitor. There was another Judas. In other Gospels, he's called Thaddeus, so he's a different person. But Jesus was answering him in verse 23, and he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And look at this, we, we will come to him and make our what? So here is this, it's not just Christ preparing a place for us in heaven. He is preparing me to be his dwelling place. Did you get that? Did those of you that live in Kathleen get that? Plant City, come on, help me out. Did you catch that? We're consumed with the place, but he says, I am going to make a home in you. I'm going to make you my home where my very presence will dwell. That's radical. I mean, especially to Jews that were fixated on the temple and being the place of where God dwelled, at least in that, in that particular sense. You see, this is consistent with what Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.16. Maybe I don't have... Did I have 3.16? Did I put that in the... All right, I have... Go to the next one, Ephesians 2. He says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles, prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, it's not talking about a physical building, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a temple in the Lord, verse 22, in whom you, you, me, also are what? Being built together for a dwelling place of God. He says, I am building your life. I am building your life to be a place where my presence will dwell. And that's consistent when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you and the Holy Spirit that will come and live inside of you. Notice another promise the Holy Spirit, number nine, the Holy Spirit will remind you what I've said. Verse 25 and 26, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you. Remember, he's talking to his disciples. But the helper, the parakletos, who is the Holy Spirit, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now, that has a dual application. One, he's telling it specifically to these disciples that in turn, several of them would have the hand in recording and giving an account in their teaching and what eventually would become uh, written uh, gospel letters concerning the teachings and life of Jesus. He's saying the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance with an assurance of 
accuracy and authenticity that you will be able to remember what I said. It wasn't that these guys just had a great memory, but they had a holy sanctified memory by the Holy Spirit that would take the recordings of what they wrote or what they taught about the life of Jesus and it would have an accuracy to it that would be authenticated by the Holy Spirit of God that we could have an assurance that when we read these words that we have the assurance that they are the words that Jesus spoke. He says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to guarantee and make sure that those words are brought back to remembrance with accuracy. That's the limited context, but there's also a broader principle. Is that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind those things that I've said. It isn't a promise of the Holy Spirit that will help you memorize a test that you've never studied for. Okay? It's not praying for a good memory. He's saying the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance what I've said. How do we do that? We don't have direct revelation today the way the disciples, the apostles that became, they did. How do we receive divine revelation? Right here. But guess what? You know, I remember uh, the, the psychic Edgar Casey claimed that he could remember, remember his school books and spelling books because he would put his spelling book under a pillow and sleep on it and he, would, he could have a memory of it. I tried it. It does not work. All right? It does not work. That's not what he's talking about. <clears throat> we, the Holy Spirit, you remember what the Scripture says in um, Psalm 119.11? I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, the Holy Spirit will bring to mind that which we have imparted and read into our life. That which we have taken in, that in times of trouble, that all of a sudden the Holy Spirit will bring the word of God, will bring the principles and the truth of God, and the Holy Spirit will apply it to that situation and that time and that place. But it's only going to happen as you digest and take in the Word of God. It's the Word and Spirit. If you're not reading the Word of the Spirit, don't expect the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind something you have not programmed your brain in setting your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, that you've hidden the Word of God in your heart. Why have I invested the Word of God in my heart? Because I know I live in a culture of death. I know I live in a world that's antithetical to the things of God. I'm being barraged at, at, at every turn to, to don't follow God's Word. Don't listen to God's Word. Don't obey God. And the Holy Spirit has a way in my life of bringing the Word of God and principles into my life in areas and times of temptation, in times when I struggle in obedience. But that only happens as I do what? As I, as I hide, as I take in, as I read the Word of God, read Scripture. I'm not talking about just a verse a day. I'm talking about read widely in the Scripture. Get a sense that when you're thinking in your mind, you look at situations, you look at the news, you look at things, and all of a sudden now, God has taken this mind, and He has 
begin to saturate it with the Word of God, and you look at situations, you look at your family, you look at your spouse, you begin to look at life through the grid of God's Holy Word. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes alongside and applies truth into your reality. He says the Holy Spirit will do that. And last, Jesus said, I will give you peace. Look at this. Read it again with me. He said, peace I leave with you. Now remember, these guys, they're not, they're not in peace. Their hearts are troubled. But Jesus says, peace I leave with you. Now look at how he differentiates his peace. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. How does the world gives? give? Temporary? Fake? You know, it gives it based upon, you know, certain moments or situations, and we have peace, we have, you know, a good report from the doctor, we've got a financial uh, situation, and whew, I'm, you know, I'm at peace now. And we got one bill tearing it up, and guess what? We got another bill on its way, right? And all of a sudden, the peace that I had over here, all of a sudden, within 10 minutes, I'm going from praise God to oh God, right? But Jesus said, my peace, and make sure you'll get this, my peace, which is my presence, my presence, not presence like I unwrap, but I mean his, his being, his person, does not mean, as I said earlier, does not mean it is the absence of trouble. There is that mindset that some people have that I became a Christian and now I got all these problems. Yeah, because you've lived 35 years doing the bidding of, of the enemy's side and he, was gonna, he didn't bother you. All of a sudden now, you've changed alliances and allegiances. And all of a sudden, you're following the king and the kingdom agenda. And all of a sudden now, this tension and this battle, we don't war against flesh and blood, against principalities, against the enemies of the heavenly places. It's not the absence of trouble. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 23? It says, though I walk through, though I hover over, Though I do a flyover the valley of the shadow of death. Though I leapfrog over the valley of the shadow of death. No. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow, the intimidation of death. What? I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. Colleen, right? We prayed this morning, right? And that's true today, and it's going to be true tomorrow, right? You're going to walk through, and you're in the valley, but he's with you.